I apologize right off. I looked at the handout and it's, um, it's missing verses 6 through 9. So uh, open up your Bibles and use that, please. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> uh, easy with me. I'm not a computer guy, so that's not hard to understand how that would happen. The passage that we're going to look at today in Zechariah 12, verses 1 through 9, is a fantastic passage. The whole chapter is extraordinary. In fact, next week we're going to actually see prophecy pertaining to the piercing of Jesus Christ in his body. It's some of the most specific prophecy uh, pertaining to the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Um, One of my boys came in uh, last night and he goes, you're not going to do that part of the sermon as well? And I laughed. I thought, I'm having troubles just handling verses 1 through 9. It's so full of amazing things for us to look at. So um, there's no way that I could have done chapter 12 justice by adding on that last part. So by God's grace, we will look this morning at verses 1 through 9. Stepping back just briefly, chapters, um, chapters 9, 10, and 11, in the Hebrew, it's actually referred to as the first burden. Some translations actually have that. And God was giving the prophet prophecies pertaining to uh, the generation of, of Zechariah leading up to the, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., And so when you look at chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Zechariah, you're going to get Alexander the Great's movement. Um, You're going to get the Maccabean Revolt. You'll have the Roman occupation. You'll have the the crucifixion of Christ. And you'll have the destruction of the temple and the city in 70 AD. And then when when we begin chapter 12 and then chapter 12, 13, and 14, it moves into the age of the church. It moves into our time right now. And so the prophecy that he's talking to, that God is is revealing to Zechariah, pertains directly to our our historical moment, as it has throughout the history of the church. Now last week, if you were here, you saw that Jesus Christ was summarily rejected by the Jews. And those, those who rejected him represented all mankind. Because Jesus Christ has universally been rejected by all mankind. But by God's grace, and I, and I mean that in its most literal sense, he didn't, the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with God sending the Savior, the people, humanity rejecting the Savior, and then God rejecting the people. The story continues. And that's where we pick up here in chapter 12, where the Messiah comes and God does a mighty work amongst those who rebel, amongst those who reject. Chapters 10 and 12, 13, and 14, God, he, several things we'll look at, not just today, in the next several weeks. One, he shows how, how he will, his strength will empower his people to, to live holy lives, to live courageous lives and strong lives as believers. How he will cultivate a community of, of believers where there's uh, unity and a desire to serve together and to serve one another, where he will cause us, as we'll see next week, to repent of our sins, and then, of course, ultimately becoming a holy people that he will set apart for his glory. In essence, the whole sermon can be summed up as this. It's God, and by his power, that he makes us into these people. It's what God does. God's going to gather us. God's going to make us strong. God's going to unify us. God's going to sanctify us. God's going to make us a holy people to bring him honor and glory and to worship him forever and ever. You say, well, that sounds kind of boring. (laughs) I hope not. I hope not. Three things this morning. Let's look at verses 1 through 9 in Zechariah 12. Three things. One, God's power exhibited on that day. Number two, God subduing his enemies through the church. And then number three, God strengthening his people for victory. God's power exhibited on that day. God subduing his enemies through the church. And number three, God strengthening his people for victory. How is God's power exhibited on that day? The prophet starts off in verse one, says, this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And it is a break from the end of chapter 11. It's a new idea. It's a new teaching coming to the prophet. It's a new chapter. And so it's an appropriate break in scripture as well. But the language itself conveys a new thought that's now coming to Israel. And it's not Israel and Judah. It's Israel used by Zechariah and the prophets throughout the Old Testament talking about God's people in general. Not just in the time of Israel or Judah, but God's people throughout human history. And so when we read about Israel here, we're talking about God's people from the beginning to the end. Okay? The universal church. 
And he starts off the message with a three-part description of God. And he uses a, a, a common Hebrew idiom where he takes three things. I, I was wondering this week, contemplating, maybe that's why pastors do three-point sermons. You know, it was a Hebrew idiom to use three types of descriptions. And he says here in verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him, declares... And so we have a description of God who made the heavens, who made the earth, who breathed life into lifeless man. This is the God that we're talking about. And what's so profound about it is it's, this is the God who is speaking. As it says in the great Nicene Creed, right? This God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, of all that is seen, the spirit in a man and unseen. This is God. This is the real God. And he's talking now, if the creator of the universe is talking, what ought his creation do? This is not a hard answer. What ought we do? Listen with all our might. This is God talking. And so the prophet starts off this new section saying, this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, who forms the spirit of man within him. This is God talking. Not the, the God of the Eastern mystics, a pantheistic God that was impersonal, that was here and there and everywhere, in the chairs, in the air. Not that God. Not the, God, not the pagan gods who had no power to do anything, let alone make a heaven or an earth or breathe life into, the spirit, into a lifeless man. Not the God of deists, right? The God of the deists said that God created and then he said enough and he let us go on our merry way. This is a God of providence, this, is a, this God who is speaking is a God who is intimately involved in his creation. This God is the God who holds the galaxies in his hands. This God is the God who sustains everything with laser precision. This is the God of the Bible. If I told you right now, that my father just got an important phone call from one of your loved ones. Would you not get up and take the call? If, I, if my dad came and said, listen, I have an important phone call from someone in your family. Would you not say, excuse me, and, and go out and take the call? Of course you would. If I told you that the President of the United States called you and has a question for you, an urgent question, Democrat or Republican, if that phone were to ring right now and the President wanted you, I imagine you'd say, well, you know, I probably should take it. Right? I mean, that would be due respect to the office. This is the creator of the universe. This is the maker of heavens and earth. This is the one who breathes life into lifeless man. This is God. Only a fool will hear the prophet say, this is the Lord speaking. Go, eh, eh, I don't need to hear. I don't, I don't really care. Not my responsibility to listen. By his grace, and it will take his grace... Because our ears will not hear unless he empowers us to hear. By his grace, you will have ears to hear what he has to say. And more importantly, what he's going to do on that day. On what day? Did you notice when Pastor Kurt was reading it, the number of times he kept saying, on that day, on that day, on that day. If you read chapters 12 through the end of the book, chapter 14, on that day, that phrase is used 16 times. So it would, it would make some sense that we know what day, what day is that. What day is he talking about? On that day. So, brief teaching theology here. The most common phrase, on the day of the Lord. And it is the day of the Lord of which the prophet is referring. Now, sometimes that day is a day in the life of the prophet himself. Sometimes. Sometimes it's a day that's generations out. Sometimes it's multiple days, multiple generations out. In the New Testament, more often than not, when... Uh, a New Testament writer talks about that day. He's talking about the day that Jesus Christ comes, comes back again in all of his glory. On that day. In the context of our passage, 500 years before the coming of Christ, that day is referring to God's movement in this time. In the age of the church. His providential movement to judge and to save throughout the history of the church. I guess in its most general sense, you could say that the day of the Lord refers to the coming of God's judging and saving power at various points in time in his historical redemption. 
And that means this. It's not talking about a calendar day, even though we do believe there will be a calendar day that Christ comes back again. We believe that. But this is not referring to a calendar day, Tuesday, July 31st. It's not talking about that. It's talking about God's interaction on that day with the church throughout the history of the church. And we've seen the providential movement of God in the Bible and in the history of the church for centuries now. In fact, when we look back over the past 2,000 years, we see God successfully and repeatedly on those days fighting against the enemies of his son and his son's bride, the church. We've seen that throughout the history of the church. In fact, the, the reason that you are here this morning, the reason that I am proclaiming the gospel this morning is because God has sustained us. And he hasn't just sustained us for the past 2,000 years. He continues to grow us. He continues to reveal himself to those who are the least and the last and the lost and the blind and bring people into his church. He continues to grow his church. During the great oppression by the Catholic Church in the 16th century, one of the reformers, John Calvin, writes this in terms of this battle, this ongoing battle. He says, we see how Satan raises up great forces we see how the whole world conspires against the church to prevent the increase or progress of the kingdom of Christ. But then he says, let us remember, however boldly may multiplied adversaries resist Christ in the work of building up a spiritual temple to God the Father, yet all their efforts will be in vain. Why? Because God on this day is actively fighting, strengthening, and gathering his children. On this day, he has been from the beginning and he will until the very end. And our entire passage this day is about God's power gathering, strengthening, sustaining, and then ultimately glorifying his people in the end in the presence of Christ the King. How many of you are listening? This is God talking. I am a simple vessel. I'm a, I'm a voice box. The prophet said, this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. This is the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him. This is God. And he declares. I pray that you will listen this morning. I know there are times when I'm preaching and I know you're not listening. You say, how do you know that? Because I taught for 14 years and I've preached for 10. I know when people are listening and I know when they're not. Usually when people are like this, they're not listening. Or like this, not listening. And even sometimes like this, but not listening. And I'm not assuming anything. You know, God knows if you're listening. But by God's grace, work at listening. It is a skill set. Say to yourself, I will not daydream. I will not be tired. I will, if need be, you know, a little smack in the face, sit up a little bit. If you need to stand up and walk around the back, that's fine. But listen to the word of the Lord. It's his word, not mine. I have nothing important to say to you. God has many important things to say to you. So are we listening? So we can go to point two? Very good. No, point number two. God subduing his enemies through the church. Verses two through four. God is revealing to the prophet Zechariah how by his power he's going to equip his people, the church that was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, to fight against his enemies. And so this is not just a great story we listen about God doing a great work. This is a great work he, he's saying he's going to do through us and is doing through us. The description here does not match any time in the history of Israel, Jerusalem, Judah, after Zechariah. It doesn't match it at all because it is talking about Israel general. It is talking about God's people throughout human history. Because God has always been strengthening his people. He's always been guarding his people. He's always been equipping us to fight from the very beginning, going all the way back to Moses and them taking the promised land. So what we find here when he talks about Jerusalem and Israel in these chapters, they're representing the church of God. And the battle is the one that was prophesied to in Genesis chapter 3. When God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And ultimately that would be Satan and the dominions of darkness and all those who reject Christ against Jesus Christ and his church. 
And that battle started back in the garden, and it has raged throughout all of human history, and it will continue to rage until when? Until Christ comes again, until the king says enough. But he hasn't come yet. That means the battle is still real. And that means we need to fight, and God needs to empower us to fight, because we cannot... I mean, can we fight the dominions of darkness on our own? No, of course not. So look at what he does first. He says, we find, we find God subduing his enemies by making them drunk. Look at verse 2. God said to the prophet, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Now, this is the cup of God's wrath. And he uses it in context of, of drink or strong drink because when that cup is poured out on the enemies, they're going to, literally in the Hebrew, they're going to tremble or stagger as though intoxicated. They're not drunk, but their response to the might of God's people and the power of God's hand will be as though they are drunk. And he sends them away. I love that. The, the, the reeling, vulnerable, confused. Great picture. He continues. Second way he's going to fight through us. Look at the latter part of verse 2. Judah will be besieged as well on that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her. This, this is somewhat of a frightening picture. You have all the nations of the entire earth gathering around God's people, around the church, to destroy the church. And for all of human history, the world has thought we can destroy the church because the church is weak. Jerusalem's weak. God's people are weak. You're vulnerable. All we have to have is the right people in the right place with the right power and we'll finally take the church out. The imagery is perfect for today, is it not? What nation and what people is friendly to God's church? Every nation on earth has taken either a passive or active aggression against God's people. But in the same verse, God says he will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. And all who try to move it will injure themselves. Jesus Christ, his church, will become the stumbling block. And every enemy, every nation, every people, every philosophy that moves against Jesus Christ and his true church will injure themselves. They will bring harm and injury upon their own movement. And he does so by making us, I love this, he makes us weighty. He makes us heavy, right? A rock that is not movable, a heavy rock of substance in Christ because Christ is the rock. And if we build our church on him, this church will not move. It cannot be moved. So he says he'll make them drunk. He will make us immovable. And then look at verse four. It, you notice the battle's intensifying. First, it's pouring out the wrath so that they are intoxicated. And then it's making us immovable so they injure themselves. And then it moves to verse 4. The hostilities intensify. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its riders with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Now, we, we've talked about this earlier in Zechariah. The horse is a, it's a war animal. Right? I know today we, we think of horses as in, you know, jumping and, you know, especially if you ride English saddle and that looks really weird on the horse in my opinion, but you do the jumping and all that. The horse was made for war. I mean, look at the horse. Even, even horses that are a bit decrepit, they look like they're ready for battle. And what God is saying here, even the most formidable enemy, even those nations that had powerful calvaries, they could not come against and be victorious against God's church. Could not win. He's going to blind their horses and he's going to make, make their riders like madmen, not knowing what to do or where to go. And throughout the history of the church, to this present hour, to this present morning, God has been doing this mighty work. He has been doing this work through his church, strengthening his church and guarding his church. The psalmist declared this in Psalm 118. I'll just read to you. Starting in verse 10, the psalmist says, All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. I am pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. 
And if you've studied church history, you can say that the Lord's mighty hand, the right hand of the Lord, Jesus Christ, has done mighty things, going all the way back to the incredible miracles we saw displayed with Pharaoh and, and in Egypt and coming out of Egypt to this present hour. God does mighty things to guard and protect and equip his church. Mighty things. And the history of the church has shown that again and again and again. You can go back to Pharaoh in Egypt. You can go to the taking of the land of Canaan. You can go to the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans or the Roman Catholic Church or communism or socialism or fascism or Islam or New Age or any of the other movements, philosophical or national movements, that have moved against God's church. And everyone, without exception, has broken itself upon the rock. Communism tried to destroy the church. And if you look at Eastern Europe, if you look at the former Soviet Union and their states, if you look today at China, the church is thriving. More so than Western Europe and the United States. Every nation, every philosophy that has moved against Christ fails and will fail. Why? Jesus Christ is a king. He's a sovereign king. That means that every nation and every philosophy and every worldview that sets itself up against the king will be destroyed. Because he's not just king. He's not just a sovereign king. He's an all-powerful providential king who rules over the heavens and earth now. That includes, my beloved, the United States of America. I know some of you are thinking, oh, a patriotic message. I know some of you still hold on to the idea that America is a Christian nation. I would argue historically that it never has been, but that's a whole other issue. I can say definitively, it is not now. This is not a Christian nation. And do not fool yourself into thinking so. Our contemporary historical moment reveals otherwise. I'll ask you some questions. Would a Christian nation allow and promote the systematic slaughter of 1.5 million children every year in their mother's womb? Would a Christian nation do that? Of course not. Would not. Would a Christian nation promote and make legal homosexual lifestyles and gay marriages? It would not. Would a Christian nation bow down at the altar of money and material prosperity? Would a Christian nation cultivate an entire generation of young men addicted to video games, entertainment, pornography, and sports? It would not. Would a Christian nation pay its people not to work? Would a Christian nation see 50% or more of marriages end in divorce? Would a Christian nation worship animals and the environment over the living God? Would a Christian nation find its true churches empty on Sundays and those churches that preach and teach a false gospel full? It would not. Would the Supreme Court of a Christian nation hear a case like Hosanna Tabor versus the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission? You say, I've never heard of that case. I pray some of you have. In 2011, the Supreme Court of this Christian nation heard one of the most important cases. It barely broke news. One of the most important cases on religious liberty in the history of the country. They heard a case surrounding whether or not a religious institution, church or school, has the right to terminate a teacher or minister who contradicts the official teachings of that church. They heard the case. They took the case. Hosanna Tabor Church versus Equal... Employment Opportunity Commission. You can look it up. Now, by God's grace, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the church. But the fact that they took the case was disturbing to many. Especially in light, in the end of their ruling, they said this. The door is still open for other cases not dealing with employment discrimination to be brought before the court to be adjudicated on. Meaning, we'll still rule as to whether or not a minister can preach or teach the gospel of grace... That's still open for us. Would a Christian nation do that? Of course not. The United States of America has proven itself to be hostile to Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, and his true church. 
And this is a battle that's been raging from the beginning. This is not new. Dictators and presidents, courts and laws, democracies and political action committees, philosophies and political movements. Every movement that has set itself up against God and Christ and his church will fail. But I want you to notice something about this passage, and I think it's the most convicting part for us. Christ exercise God exercises his power against the enemies of Christ the gospel of grace and the church through the church in other words the church fights for the church God's people fight the enemies of his people what does that mean that means he calls us into the battle this is not something we sit back and go praise God that you're fighting that and you have been and you will continue he's saying I'm fighting through you I'm fighting through Camden Avenue And if we have any desire for this country to make any headway for the gospel of grace and Jesus Christ and move out of this very dark place that we are in, in this non-Christian nation, if we have any hope of not ending up like Western Europe, where the church there is a lifeless shell of what it used to be, talking about their glory days, if we have any desire, then the church, then Camden, will be strengthened by God and fight to fight. We will engage in the battle. We can't say, well, you know, the church down the street or the church in Sacramento, this church, this time, we, God's people, will fight. We'll rise up and become, as the prophet said, a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling, Jerusalem, an immovable rock of all the nations. I hear that, and that's so encouraging. And then when we look out, we go, that's not us. And I don't mean us. I mean, that's not the church. I don't think many people in the United States would define the contemporary American church as an immovable rock. I don't think we'd say, you know, we are pouring out the gospel and we're pouring out God in such a way that people are reeling from it. I think that when we look out, we see just the opposite. We see a desperate desire to be relevant. We see a desperate fear of being irrelevant. Doing everything to make the church seem contemporary and connected to the culture. When I was in seminary in the late 1990s, the movement then was the seeker-sensitive movement. It's now old, but that was the movement. But it was the same, right? It's the same thing of saying, let's be contemporary. Let's, let's meet the culture in a particular way. Let's figure out what they want and what they're doing and try to squeeze ourselves into their lives. The seeker-sensitive movement became the contemporary church movement, which became the emergent church movement, which became the high-impact church movement, which today has become the relevant church movement. In the words of Ravi Zacharias, same bird, different walk. Same bird, different walk. Same idea that somehow we've got to create a new package or a new strategy or a new word or a new something to get people interested in Jesus Christ, even though we never see that in the Bible. And from it, even today, there's an interesting quasi-counter-relevant church movement by Reformed pastors and several popular pastors. I will not name them. You can do your own research. And they argue, listen to what they argue. They argue the slick and shallow marketing strategies of the contemporary church movement over the past decades have failed. But in the same breath, they tell God's church how to really be relevant. They denounce it in one sentence and then they uphold it in the next. With what? With their own books. I'll read to you from one popular author and one popular blogger. In his book, he writes... He says of his book, it's a look at 15 different churches across the country that are definitely not the parish next door. Written by a leader from each congregation, these are churches that don't like to be called churches. They meet in bars and coffee shops and they spin records and they ride skateboards. They're interested in being the church and not going to church. Thousands. And I mean that literally. Probably tens of thousands of churches have been caught up in this relevant church movement. Doing everything to be light. 
from the superficial changes like pastoral facial hair and hair, I'm, hairstyle and, and clothes to when we meet, the times we meet, because Sunday is a taboo time, to deeper issues like the importance of the type of music in gospel worship, the systematic compromise of biblical standards, the changing of the gospel of grace, the movement away from the true gospel the Bible proclaims in our fear of being swept away, the American church's fear of being swept away by the culture, we become like this pimply-faced, 90-pound freshman in high school trying desperately to be liked by his friends. Like me, like me, like me. In making ourselves relevant, we become irrelevant. In trying not to be swept away, we've been swept away, and the worst part is, we don't even know we've been swept away. The church has been swept away a long time ago, and we think we're so relevant, we're so pertinent, we're so hip. I have not found a single verse in all of sacred scripture where God calls me or commands me to be hip. I don't want to be hip. I don't want to be contemporary. I don't want to be cool. These are appeasement strategies. This is what Poland did with Adolf Hitler in 1939. These strategies do not work. We are not to be relevant. We have been trying for decades now to try to answer the wrong question. Here it is. I got this at seminary. How can our church stay relevant in a culture that's constantly evolving? That's the wrong question. So we try to answer a question that's the wrong question from the beginning. Zechariah was speaking prophetic words to a people that had compromised on the truths of God. They too. This is not new, right? Solomon said, nothing new under the sun. In Zechariah's day, they too were trying to be relevant. How? Through pagan idolatry. They wanted to be part of the culture, not, not completely set apart, not holy people, kind of holy people with a little pagan idolatry. It cracks me up when these authors write about these new movements. These are not new movements. These are old movements, and they're all Satan. Within a few years of the prophecy, of this prophecy, we know from the book of Nehemiah that the state of Jerusalem was pathetic. The spiritual state of Jerusalem was pathetic. Idolatry had abounded. Worshipping false gods. They too wanted to be relevant. And in so doing, made themselves irrelevant. J.I. Packer wrote a piece here I'm going to read to you. He was making a parallel between the Jerusalem church at the time of Zechariah and the contemporary church in our country. And I need to say that in our country because as I've talked to friends from around the world, it's not like this everywhere. Praise God. J.I. Packard writes this. He says, Jerusalem is a picture of Christian churches generally in the modern West. Weakness, disillusionment, and the melting away of adherence to the story is the story everywhere. The secularizing of community life and the faltering of theologians, church leaders, and ordinary clergy has left the majority of congregations in a very low state. He's kind in saying low state. Deplorable. Broken. This is not how God's church is supposed to be. We're supposed to be an immovable rock. We're supposed to be a cup that's poured out the gospel of grace that sends the enemies reeling. This is how it's described here. Is this how we're living? Is this how we are living? I mean, the, the question is for us today. Let's not talk about the church down the street. Let's talk about, are we living like this? And if the answer is no, then the next question would be, how then? Where are we going to get the strength to be an immovable rock? Because I, like I feel like a feather that's tossed in the wind. Where are we going to get the strength to have the steadfastness in Christ that when our cup pours out, our enemies reel from it. They're sent away as though intoxicated. Where do we get that strength, that power? Because really it's a power issue, isn't it? 
Point number three, God strengthens his people for victory. Verses one through four, if you've noticed, they were focused on what God was going to do through his people with the enemies of Christ. Verses five through nine, which the majority of which you don't have on your handout, (laughs) is about what he's going to do within his people. The great work of strengthening his church. What the creator of the heavens and the earth is doing to make us the people that he desires us to be. Strong, courageous, compassionate, filled with mercy. Even here, there's a tripart division. It's not mine, it's the scripture, so take it up with God. He gives us three ways to be victorious. Three ways. Number one, through covenant obedience. Number two, through faithful leadership. And number three, by making us one. Unity and equality in the body of Christ. Let me show you the first one. God strengthens his people through covenant obedience. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 5. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. Saints, I will tell you that in my 10, 11 years of pastoring, there is no greater joy in the pastoral ministry than to see a body of believers strong, courageous, striving in Christ. No greater joy than to see that happen. Over the years, people have asked me, not a lot, but some, you know, what what can I do to serve you? How can I help you, pastor? And Almost always, you know, unless, unless I'm hungry and I eat a sandwich, almost always it's the same. It's pursue Christ, run after Christ, fight for Christ, grow in Christ, serve the Lord, love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because when you do that, when you do that, you bless me immeasurably. As your pastor, as your under-shepherd, shepherds love to see the sheep healthy. Shepherds love to see the sheep vibrant. Covered with lots of wool. I mean, healthy sheep. Obedient sheep. Sheep that care for one another. There's no greater gift you can give to your pastor than to study and pray and serve and minister and share the gospel lost. And to make. There's no greater gift. Not even chocolate for this pastor surpasses that gift. And I love, they say that their hearts Rejoice, the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong. They're looking out, they're saying, the people of God are strong. How? Look at the latter part of verse 5. Because the Lord Almighty is their God. The God's people are strong, why? Because God is their God. God's people are strong Because they derive their strength not from their own wisdom, not from their own willpower, not from their upbringing or their culture, not from their relevancy or irrelevancy, not from any church movement or any church book of any kind. The people of God are strong when they receive their strength from their God. You say, well, who is that God? In the Hebrew, it literally is Yahweh Elohim. We've talked about this. In the text, it says they receive their strength. Look at it again. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Almighty, is their Elohim. The, the Yahweh is their Elohim. In other words, they receive their strength because they're receiving their strength from the one who is really God. Their God, their personal God, with whom they have an intimate relationship with. A real relationship. And this has been the storyline throughout the entire history of the church. That when God's people enter into a covenant relationship with the living God, Yahweh Elohim, and they submit to that God and they follow that God, they have great strength. The converse being equally true, when those who profess God's name as God's people do not come into that covenant relationship and do not follow that living God according to his laws, then they are weak. Moses said to the nation of Israel as they were preparing to go in and take the promised land, great battles before them. That was going to be Joshua's burden. 
But Moses taught this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. I want you to listen with all your ears because the particulars of some of these words important. Moses said before they entered the land, if you fully obey the Lord your God, fully obey, and carefully follow all his commands, if you fully obey and carefully follow That's not partial obedience. That's not haphazard submitting. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, listen to the promises. God says, I give you today, these are the promises, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Listen to them. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land, and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks, your basket, and your kneading, your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in, and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, and flee in seven others. That's the God who fights for you. That's the God who will bless you in a covenant relationship with Yahweh Elohim. This is where they got their strength. Jesus summarized that entire passage from Exodus, from Deuteronomy 28. He summarizes it in one verse. I mean, he can do this, right? He's the perfect teacher. John 15, 10, Jesus said, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. And that's where we want to be. Right? We want to remain in, continuing and growing in the love of God. We want to have his love poured out on us, and we want to love him. And the result of that is always obedience. When you say, I love the Lord, you'll obey the Lord. When you say, I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, that will result in faithful obedience, covenant relationship. You will do as he wants you to do. And that means that our strength that comes from God must come through this covenant relationship. It must come through our obedience to him. Some of you may be saying, maybe that's why I'm so weak. I don't obey. That's a good deduction. Maybe that's why I'm always struggling. I don't submit. A good deduction. If you're not courageous and you're not bold and you're not strong, are you submitting to God? Are you following him? Is Yahweh your Elohim? Is he your covenant God? That's a good question. Much better than are you relevant. Point number two. God strengthens his people through faithful leadership. Now here is the laser upon me. So take out your light and put it on me. And Pastor Todd and Pastor Kurt and every man in this church. Verse six, look. God said to the prophet Zechariah, on that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume right and left and all surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The leaders within God's church, pastors and elders, deacon and mature men, you saying, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a deacon, I'm not an elder, you're not off the hook. He's talking about all men in the church. Mature men in the church. This is talking to you. You are to be a fire pot in a wood pile. You're to be a flaming torch that devours the enemies of God and Christ and the gospel and the Bible. Devours. How desperately this is needed in our country. How desperately this is needed in our homes. How desperately we need godly men who are like fire pots and flaming torches in the church. Pastors and deacons and elders and men. Godly men who are not concerned with their Sunday attire or their facial hair or how culturally relevant their sermons are. I praise God I don't think about it once, how relevant this will be. We're called to proclaim the gospel of grace. We're called to teach and declare God's word. Men on fire. I love that. Blazing pastors 
how glorious it would be if you said, what are the churches like in this area? The pastors are blazing. Wouldn't that be great? So what do you mean? They're on fire. Fire pots. I like flaming torch better. Pot, flame, flaming torch. Boldly declaring the word of God. Not succumbing to the foolishness of men. Not relying on cheap tricks or marketing strategies or how to be relevant. But godly men who declare boldly God's word. Godly men who boldly lead their family in the way of righteousness. Who love their wives as Christ loved the church. Who raise their children to know and love and serve the Lord. Godly men who serve and minister in the church, in the local church. To those in need. To those who are hungry. I mean spiritually hungry. Godly men who equip the believers in the church to do mighty things for a mighty God. Hmm. Men who spend the time studying the God, God's word diligently so that we know how we are to be. Feeding on the word of God so that it goes in and it transforms us from the inside out. Throughout the history of the church, Without exception, when godly men have risen up like flaming torches, enemies of God have been toppled and movements have taken place within God's people. Radical movements have taken place. Men such as these set the world ablaze and for some are set ablaze themselves. I'm going to give you an example of two men, one story. True. Shortly after Queen Mary, many of you know her from your history books as Bloody Mary. Shortly after she took the throne from her brother Edward, she had two men arrested, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, both pastors. When King Henry VIII separated from the Roman Catholic Church, he did so for personal reasons. And they didn't make any reforms within the church. It was essentially the Catholic Church now playing itself out, not under the papacy in England. When King Henry died, his son King Edward became king, and he made real biblical reform, bringing back the Bible, bringing back the gospel of grace, bringing back life into the church, real biblical reform. Two of those men who served him faithfully was Bishop Pastor Ridley, Bishop Pastor Latimer. Bishop Ridley was bishop in London, and he served under both King Henry and King Edward. And Bishop Latimer was the pastor in Worcester, and he served under Henry and Edward as well. Both men who loved the word of God, both men who loved God, both men who faithfully proclaimed and taught the word of God, men who encouraged the members of their congregation to read the Bible in English, to study the Bible on their own. Men who lived out the faith in their own lives. They were a living testimony to the gospel of grace, changing them and transforming them. Pastor Latimer was known for teaching his congregation to serve the Lord from their heart. Not just a religious external display of piety, but to love God and serve God from the inside out. Powerful men in the kingdom of God making great movement as they proclaimed and declared the gospel of grace. Well, when Queen Mary came to power... She had both Pastor Ridley and Pastor Latimer arrested and put in the Tower of London. This was 1553, 1554, and 1555. They were both taken to Oxford and brought before the Lord's Commission in the School of Divinity. And they were asked several questions about their allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. Ridley was asked whether or not he would submit to the authority of the Pope in Rome. He replied, the church was not built on any man but upon the truth. Peter confessed that Christ is the Son of God. Ridley said he could not honor the Pope in Rome since the papacy was seeking its own glory, not the glory of God. Ridley and Latimer were both asked whether or not they would accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the communion. 
Latimer writes, Christ made one offering and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and that a perfect sacrifice. There need not be, nor can there be, any other proprietary, I'm sorry, propitiatory, propitiation, sacrifice for sin. Queen Mary was furious and sentenced them both to die by being burned at the stake. So these two pastors were brought out in Oxford in in 1555 before their congregations and they were set on fire. Ridley prayed, Heavenly Father, I give unto thee my hearty thanks for thou hast called me to be a professor of thee even unto death. And then he says, I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. Ridley's wood, the wood that was placed around his stake was green. And so it didn't catch fire properly. It only burned the lower half of his body for quite some time. And so he was heard crying out to God, Lord, have mercy upon me. I cannot burn. Let the fire come unto me completely. I cannot burn. It was taking a long time for him to die. Latimer, who died more quickly because his, the wood there was dry... He had some encouraging words to his friend before he died first. And I would argue to all men, listen. Vladimir said to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. I love that. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. Be a man. We shall this day Light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. And they did. They set that church on fire in such a way that Queen Mary's efforts were were, uh, uh, eventually um, failed. And there was a stirring inside the Church of England. A real stirring. Not just breaking from the papacy and from Rome, but a stirring in Christ and the gospel and the Bible. They literally set England ablaze. The same holds true for us men of Christ. If you fight for your Lord, if you submit to his teachings, if you glean your strength from the cross and you engage in this mighty battle, then you too will be a fire pot that sets wood piles on fire. You'll be, you'll be a, a flaming torch that sets sheaves on fire. You will fight in such a way that the enemies will reel and be toppled. Enemies of Christ, your king. Enemies of the gospel of grace. Enemies of the word of God. Enemies of his church. So God strengthens his church through covenant obedience. God strengthens his church through faithful, godly men set on fire. And lastly, as I'll close, he strengthens his church by bringing unity and equality amongst the saints. Look at what he says here. In verses seven, I'm just gonna read to you. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. Remember last week from Zechariah chapter 11, the the staff of unity, of union was taken away. Well, God said, I'm gonna bring it back. And I'm going to bring harmony and unity and within the body of Christ. And he says, I'm going to do that by, I'm going to save Judah first. Now, what does that mean? Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah. So he says, I'm going to go out of Jerusalem. I'm going to save those in the towns and communities and the rural folk, those who aren't as important, those who aren't living in the city. And I'm going to save them first. And then I'm going to save Jerusalem. He said, well, why would he do that? Why would he save those on the outskirts? Because God wants, he doesn't want inferiority complexes within his church. He wants unity and equality in Christ. He wants us to see that we're all sinners saved by grace. All of us. He doesn't want people at different levels. These are the really good people. These are the okay people. These are the not so good people. And these are the people we think are barely going to get into heaven. Unity in the body. 
Paul makes this point clear in Galatians chapter 3 when he says of the church, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You're all sons of God. You're all daughters of God through faith in Christ. And then he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Unity. Radical unity. And then Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This order of operation of salvation, Judah first and then Jerusalem, it'll nullify any bragging rights in the body of Christ. It'll nullify any, I'm more savable than you. You're more savable. It won't, that all goes away. It creates a level playing field of anybody who is saved by grace comes in as a sinner through and through. And if you know yourself well, you will argue with the Apostle Paul that you are the chief sinner. I know that's my argument with him and will be. Jesus taught to this great leveling principle in the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 13 when he said this. Listen. Jesus said, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. God strengthened us by making us one. The church is strong when the church is not fighting. The church is strong when the church is unified in the blood of Christ. When we don't elevate ourselves above our brothers and sisters, but just the opposite. We submit to one another. We serve one another. The church is strong when it's like that. And then God makes a promise that is beyond comprehension and why I couldn't get to the rest of the chapter. I got stuck here. In verses 8 and 9, God said, On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David. The feeblest, like David. And the house of David will be like God. Like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. This statement is so extreme and so radical. He says, on the one hand, I'm going to take the weakest, most feeble, the, those who are weakest in the faith, those who lack faith. I'm going to take you and make you like a warrior like David. How was David? He was the mighty warrior of God. That's an extraordinary statement. But then he says, I will make the house of David be like God. Like the angel of the Lord referring to Christ himself. And I got stuck here and I said, how is that possible? I mean, it's hard enough for me to imagine the weakest in the faith becoming mighty warriors, but how will God make the house of David, the church of God, filled with sinners like God? Even David, although a mighty warrior and a man after God's own heart, according to the word of God, even David was a wicked sinner. I mean, look at what he did. And I'm just like him, and so are you. How will God make this church his church, like him, like the angel of the Lord, like Christ. One way, by the blood of the Lamb. One way, by the blood of Christ. Our Lord's death on the cross and outpouring the Holy Spirit set another fire ablaze. It did. Lots of fires going, some good, some not so good. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God sends his power and sets people on fire. And he sets us on fire to become a holy people. To be holy as he is holy. So on the cross, not only did Christ die to save sinners and wretches like us, but on the cross, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's the hand of power. He then imparts to us. He gives to us freely through the gospel of grace. To all who repent and believe, he says, I have saved you from the pit of hell, and now here's my glory, here's my power, here's my honor. Listen, here's my holiness. And he gives that to his church. And then he says, now walk in my holiness. Be holy as I am holy. Be holy as my Father is holy. 
washed clean. Jesus Christ with his blood washed us clean. Do you know that? I mean, as we looked at Romans chapter 7 this morning in Sunday school, and Paul saying, the very things that I want to do, I do not do. And those things I do not want to do, I keep on doing them. Oh, what a wretched man am I. Do you know in this state, in this struggle, that in Christ you're clean right now? Or are you still beating yourself up? Are you still trying to make yourself good enough? Are you still trying to do the religious exercises, enough prayer, enough scripture, enough offerings, enough service to make myself clean? That road ends in destruction. And it's a weary road. If you're on it, get off now. Get off this morning. In Christ, you are clean. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And that is what some of you were. That's past tense. But if you were washed, you were sanctified. If you were washed, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you were washed, if you saw God, see God as holy, if you profess with your mouth Jesus Christ as Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if Christ is your Lord and your King and you're following him, then you're clean. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You're washed clean. And you say, praise God for that. What does that mean? That means live as though you've been washed clean. Right? Why live a life that's contrary to God when we've already been made clean? Why strive against the Spirit? Why do that? You're already clean in Christ. You have all the power of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Holy Triune God dwells in you. That means you have everything. I'll read it to you. Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You have everything you need. You have all the power you need in Christ to live a holy life. Why? Peter continues, so that we might participate in the divine nature. So that we might what? We might be like God so that we might be like the angel of the Lord, so that you might participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Saints, this is the good news. God takes ordinary, sinful, wretched people like you and me, and he makes us glorious. He makes the most feeble the weakest, the most pathetic, the least, the last, the lost, the darkest sheep. And he brings us in, he washes us by the blood of the Lamb, and he makes us into a holy people. Why? So that one day, one day, saints, it's not going to be like this. One day, we're all going to be gathered around the throne of God, and we're going to be looking at each other and go, look at you, look at you. And we're going to see each other in our glorified states, in our glorified bodies before the glorified Christ. And it will be an eternity of extraordinary perception and life. Look at you. I dare say we're going to have trouble recognizing each other. <laughs> Look at you. So now, right now, this day, this night, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, this week, this month, now. Live in light of this truth. Live in light of this power. Let us be a people that are set ablaze now. Let us be a people that is not so shocked in the eternal realm when we see one another. Is that you? Let us not be that people. Let us be a people living lives right now so holy and so glorious for God that that transition will be an easy one. By his power, by his strength, until the final trumpet sounds 
and Jesus returns in all of his glory, I pray that you will stand as a holy people in him. Fight against your fears. Fight against those silly anxieties that make their way into your head and keep you up at night. Fight against them. Fight against the temptation of the sins that still have you bound. Fight against those sins. Fight against the enemies of darkness. Fight. Fight with great confidence and look to Jesus Christ for your strength and remain strong because the Lord, your God, the Lord Almighty, Yahweh Elohim, is your God. He's your God. Live like it. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for not being torches ablaze for you. Forgive me for not being a leader, Lord, that you've called to set the enemies ablaze with the gospel of grace. Forgive us for the fears that captivate us, for the sins that still bind us. Forgive us, Lord, as a church for not being that cup that sends our enemy reeling, for not being that immovable rock. Forgive us, Father, I pray, for not being the people that you've called us to be, a holy people, a people filled with grace and mercy, a people that love one another as Christ loves us. Forgive us of these sins, I pray, Father, and cultivate in each of us And then cultivate in us collectively as one body that desire to submit to the power that's already in us. We don't lack power. You said through the Apostle Peter that we have everything we need for godliness, for holiness. Father, I ask you to do this great work through us through your church here at Camden Avenue Baptist for the sole purpose of bringing you honor and glory, for the sole purpose of your magnification and glorification in our lives, in our families, in this community, in this country. We don't want to be like Western Europe. We don't want to talk about the days of old. We don't want to be a people that are not living passionately, fervently, daily for Christ now. Set us ablaze, Lord. Set us ablaze. I pray we would wait no longer. Give us the wisdom to submit as a covenant people with you, our covenant God. For in you there is great strength. I pray all this in Christ's holy name.